everybody, welcome back for another episode of ENT in a Nutshell. My name is John Marinelli, and today we're going to be talking about single-sided deafness in adults and children. This will be there'll be two parts to this. We'll do a, 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 an episode on uh, single-sided deafness in adults, and then there'll be a, a complimentary piece with the same guests on single-sided deafness in children. Um, and so for both these pieces, we have um, Dr. Matt Carlson, a neurotologist, joining us, as well as uh, Dr. Meg Dillon, an audiologist, where we'll um, go through all the different facets of managing patients, um, both kids and adults, with single-sided deafness. So Dr. Carlson, um, thanks so much for joining us. Dr. Dillon, thank you as well for being here. Thanks a lot, John. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Happy to be here. So Dr. Carlson, to start things off, how common is single-sided deafness? That's a great question. Um, when we think about single-sided deafness, it's, it's probably a lot more frequent than what we actually realize. Every day we walk around and meet people with single-sided deafness, and I would bet that all of us know at least a couple patients or people with single-sided deafness, but we don't even know they have it because a lot of people adjust to it and don't necessarily use a rehabilitative device. And so it's basically an invisible symptom that a lot of people adjust to, which is in contrast to bilateral deafness where the patient isn't able to compensate it for it and you're much more likely to go on to cochlear implantation or something like that. So um, just to start off, just, I want to say it's much more common than what we realize. If you look at reported uh, prevalence data uh, from some of the uh, recent reports, it'll estimate that single-sided deafness in the adult population approximates 0.1 to 0.15% of the population, depending on the definition used. So about 300,000 adults in the United States or more uh, suffer from adult-acquired single-sided deafness. How would a patient with single-sided deafness typically present to your clinic? So the most common etiology for adult uh, single-sided deafness or quite, uh, adult-acquired single-sided deafness is idiopathic sudden sensory neural hearing loss. So there's no identifiable cause for the hearing loss. So most of the time, the patient will just wake up or experience a sudden event of hearing loss in the ear, and then they'll, uh, which is often associated. It may or may not be associated with vertigo. It may may or may not be associated with tinnitus or earfulness. But because of these symptoms, they'll present to their physician uh, with the complaint. You'll get an audiogram, and, and it will show a, a loss. And so that's the most common presentation. A, a small percentage of adults with single-side deafness have a congenital or pediatric onset uh, single-side deafness, and they've lived their whole life into adulthood with a very prolonged duration of deafness. But that makes up a small percentage of the adult population with single-side deafness. Other etiologies of acquired adult-onset single-side deafness include Meniere's disease, trauma, so most commonly a temporal bone fracture, retrocochlear pathology. And when we think about that, the most common one we'll be thinking about is a sporadic vestibular schwannoma, chronic otitis media, uh, or iatrogenic causes are probably the most common etiologies for uh, adult single-sided deafness. What are some common coexistence symptoms that patients present with? All adults, virtually every adult with single-sided deafness will, will tell you two things. And um, they may not offer it, but if you ask them about that, they'll say, yes, absolutely. Those are big problems for me. And the first is sound localization. You need two ears to lo- locate sound or triangulate sound. And so with a single ear, um, you could be sitting in an elevator um, lobby or in a lobby of a hotel and have all the elevators around you. You could hear the, the ding of the bell go off and you'll hear that it arrived just like me or anybody else with hearing in both ears, but you won't know where it came from and you'll have to use your visual cue to identify what elevator opens. So you lose that sound localization. That's most evident to hunters, uh, for example, when you can't hear uh, the directionality of of an animal or something else like that, or a field, a police officer, a field officer, where they really are dependent on sound localization. It can really affect that population in particular. And then the, the second thing is increasing difficulty, understanding other people talk when there's competing background noise. And that difficulty can increase with an increasing background noise level and also in certain configurations. So for example, if the noise is coming into the good ear and the and the speech that you're trying to hear is on the side of your deaf ear, that creates a very difficult configuration for a person with single-side deafness to hear. And so with that, you can have increasing uh, listening fatigue. One problem that commonly comes along with idiopathic sudden sensorial hearing loss, again, the most common cause of acquired adult onset uh, single-side deafness is concomitant tinnitus. 
Tinnitus in the adult population is ubiquitous in general, but particularly within this population, a number of patients are really troubled by their tinnitus. And one of the main treatment strategies or management strategies for tinnitus is masking. And, you know, the saying goes that you can't mask a deaf ear. And so they, they've basically lost one of their primary mechanisms for treating it. And remarkably, cochlear implants actually work remarkably well for tinnitus suppression, particularly in the SSD population. This is one of the first indications that led us to find out cochlear implants really work for this group for hearing rehabilitation was the finding that uh, we were, or was the um, intent of actually treating their tinnitus. So uh, very interesting uh a condition. And even though it's, um, you know, we, we think about single side deafness or being bilaterally deaf as kind of all in the same group, these two populations are very different and how we approach them is very different in their diagnostic workup and therapeutic pathway also, which is what we'll get into. Uh, lastly, I understand some of these patients that may present to your clinic may be at, at risk for contralateral hearing loss. Um, would you mind touching on that briefly? Absolutely. When you think about a person with single-sided deafness, one of the most important questions to ask is what or what sort of risk do they have for acquiring it in their contralateral ear? If you look at a patient with sudden sensory hearing loss, the reported risk of developing a sudden hearing loss in the contralateral ear is low. It's about 1%. But there are other conditions that have an elevated risk of having a, a subsequent hearing loss in the other ear. And in the adult population, that's probably most commonly Meniere's disease. So depending on the study you read, 30 to 50% of adults with Meniere's disease will eventually develop bilateral Meniere's disease. And the kind of the saying is, well, all of them do if you follow them long enough, um, which is what some people will say. But just to say it's pretty common. Patients with uh, meningitis are at risk for developing a hearing loss in one ear and then a progressive hearing loss in the other ear. And then, of course, the uh, NF2 population, where they're at risk for developing uh, bilateral vestibular schwannomas, uh, a hallmark of the disease. All right. And, and so as we start to think about um, some of these specific or unique challenges that these patients have, localizing sound or difficulty in understanding speech and background noise or competing noise, um, Dr. Dillon, could you just start to um, help us help us to understand why are having two ears important? Um, what, what's the benefit of binaural hearing? Yeah, so there's um, different sources of information that we can use to identify where sounds are coming from um, that makes up our binaural hearing abilities. And so one of those is differences in the timing of information that's arriving to each of the ears. And so if something is presented directly in front of you or directly behind you, that sound source or that sound will reach your ears at the same time. But if it's offset in either direction on the horizontal plane, then that sound is going to reach one ear first, and then there will be this delay before it reaches the second ear. And we refer to that as an interaural timing difference. And the interaural timing difference is dominated mostly by low frequency cues. And then alternatively, there is the interaural level difference. So um, that's the differences in loudness between the two ears. So again, if something is offset on the horizontal plane, it will be louder to the first ear, and then the head creates this shadow for the contralateral ear. Um, and so the, it attenuates that sound that's arriving to the contralateral ear. Um, and so those differences in interaural timing and interaural level differences are what tells us where the sound source is. Um, and when there's discrepancies between those two signals, um, the spectral enhancement cue, which is the way that our ear shapes the sound and the spectral content as it's bouncing around in the external auditory canal can help resolve some of those discrepancies. So we use interaural timing differences and interaural level differences, um, and then the spectral enhancement cues to figure out where sounds are coming from. And so you can imagine if you only have one ear and you're not able to take advantage of that information, then your understanding of where sounds are around you is impaired, which makes identifying a sound source difficult, which is what we refer to as localization. And it also makes understanding speech and noise when there's multiple talkers in your environment or different environmental sounds that are interfering with the um, target of interest that makes it very challenging to understand what's being said. All right. We've already started to touch on this a little bit, but there's some um, high yield concepts here that I think would be helpful to um, go into greater depth. So Dr. Dillon, um, 
maybe first of which, could we define and talk a little bit about the head shadow effect? So the head shadow is a reduction in the sound intensity because the head casts a shadow over the far ear. And this is a physical phenomenon that primarily affects the high frequencies due to their shorter wavelengths. So frequencies lower than 1500 hertz have longer wavelengths and they can make it around the head, whereas the head creates a physical barrier for those high frequencies and therefore they are attenuated and can't make it over to the far ear. And this can cause up to 15 dB of intensity reduction. And um, if we think about this for a scenario where we have a listener who has the speech or the speaker on their right side that they're wanting to listen to, and then we have noise on their left side, um, even if that signal that they're wanting to listen to and the noise are the same intensity level, um, the listener will still have an advantage for this hearing the speaker on their right side because of the attenuation that is created by the head um, for that noise signal for the high frequency components of the noise signal. What about binaural squelch um, or sometimes called binaural release from masking? What, what do those terms mean? Yeah, so binaural squelch and binaural summation are two central phenomena. So unlike head shadow effect, which is a, a physical barrier, um, binaural squelch and binaural summation are the benefits that listeners experience by receiving information to two ears as opposed to one. With binaural squelch, we have differences in where the target or the speaker of interest is relative to the noise in space, and this creates differences in the target to masker ratio for each ear because of the differences in the timing of the signal and the level of the signal as it's arriving to each ear. And when we listen with one ear by itself, even if that ear has the better target to um, masker ratio or signal to noise ratio, which is um, another way to refer to that. Um, the listener has a benefit when the contralateral ear is added and that other target to masker ratio is included because it gives them a better representation of the signal and therefore they have a better understanding of what's being said. Um, so that physical separation of the target and the masker in space and those differences in timing level cues that are arriving to each ear, when those are um, represented centrally or when those are um, presented centrally, the listener has a better understanding of what's being said. Similarly, with binaural summation, we're thinking about um, the two ears working together, only in this case, the target and the masker are presented from the same space. And so even though the timing cues and the level difference cues are the same because they are located in the same space, um, listening with one ear by itself um, gives a certain level of performance, but adding the second ear provides um, a, this duplicate representation of the signal, um, which can result in better speech recognition. You mentioned previously that the head shadow predominantly being something that affects higher frequency um, sound due to the, the wavelength and sound distortion as it gets around the, the physical skull. Is there a uh, frequency of sound that's most affected in binaural squelch? Yes, yeah, so the binaural squelch phenomenon is driven primarily by interaural timing differences, so those low frequency cues. And there is up to a 15 dB difference below 2500 hertz. And this can lead to approximately 10% better speech understanding. And when we say, when, when we sometimes will read in textbooks and things that um, this is called binaural release from masking. Um, I, I feel like it can be somewhat confusing terminology. Is it safe to say that that what that's talking about is is um, improving the SNR, or how, how do you think about just th those specific terms? I think it's kind of confusing. Yeah, so we'll sometimes say binaural release from masking or spatial release from masking is another way to refer to it. And it's the benefit the listener receives when the masker is offset from the target on the horizontal plane. And so if we think about that, if we have the target and the masker 
coming from the same speaker in front of us. Um, we have a certain level of speech recognition, but once we start moving that masker away from the target um, and towards one ear along the horizontal plane, then there is a difference in that signal to noise ratio between the two ears. Um, and the difference in the timing of the information that's coming to those two ears is the benefit that the listener gets to recognize that the masker is now in a certain location and can start to focus in more on what's being said by the speaker. Right. And so thinking about the patient with single-sided deafness who presents saying, you know, when I'm at a restaurant, I have a ton of trouble um, hearing what my spouse is saying or whatever. The, the, the masker in this case, in that case, is the background noise, target being obviously their spouse. Um, I guess that's, that's how, it, how we can think about it. Right. And so in, in that case, if the listener only has one ear, then they're not able to take advantage of these differences in timing and level cue. So it's all just one wall of sound that's coming from them or coming towards them. So it's the environmental noise and it's the spouse and it's just one wall of sound and they're not able to pick up some of these differences and take advantage of things that um, listeners with two normal hearing ears can. Okay, and as we um, start to transition now to to working up a patient who presents with single sided deafness, um, pulling all of these important audiometric or audiologic um, phenomena together, um, how do we think about audi audiometric testing in the workup of a patient with single sided deafness? So one of the important things. Um that we're thinking about is how to appropriately mask the normal hearing ear or the better hearing ear. Um, and so we talk about um, effective masking. Um, so first, when we're testing someone who's presenting with single side deafness, you know, they'll tell you which ear is the poor hearing ear. And you start with the better hearing ear first, measuring those thresholds. And then that can give you um, an estimation of what your masking level should be so that you can appropriately distract the normal hearing ear and accurately measure the thresholds in the poor hearing ear. Um, the other thing we care a lot about when we're thinking about patients with single side deafness is what is the speech understanding? So it's not just detection of sound, but it's the recognition of sound. And again, you're wanting to distract the normal hearing ear with some masking noise so that you can appropriately measure the speech recognition performance um, in the impaired ear. We, you know, of course, we would get comprehensive audiometric testing working up a patient with um, single-sided deafness. I think a, a follow-on question to what you're saying is is some of the specifics surrounding the CI or the cochlear implant evaluation. Um, we'll hold on that for now. We'll get into that in just a, a minute. But um, Dr. Carlson, I wanted to ask you, when we think about neuroimaging in the work of a patient with single-sided deafness, um, how do we think about both MRI and, and CT uh, great questions. I think you can think about it in two different ways. The first is, what is your diagnostic workup to understand what the underlying etiology is? And then the second question is, if you're considering cochlear implant candidacy, um, sometimes the same imaging would provide the answer for both, but not always. So um, broadly, anybody who has asymmetrical hearing loss, sensory hearing loss, um, should get an MRI uh, as long as there's no con a strict contraindication to MRI. And if there is a strong contraindication to MRI, then some sort of imaging uh, or at least um, serial audiometric follow-up should be obtained, um, trying to get at um, ruling out uh, uh, vestibular schwannoma or something else like that. So person, again, the most common etiology for adult single-sided deafness is um, uh, idiopathic sudden sensory hearing loss in that population, two to 5% of patients will harbor a vestibular schwannoma or retrocochlear pathology. And it's our job to, to rule those things out first. So after you've gotten past that point, um, so just backing up, there are some other conditions that um, uh, can present on CT scan. Uh, so the diagnosis is uh, uh, benef benefits from CT scan also. So, so it's not just MRI. So a couple examples where you might consider a CT scan in this population is the patient with chronic otitis media. You can look for a labyrinthine fistula, a person with progressive labyrinthitis ossificans. Uh, the, we'll talk about this in a minute, but there is a radiological progression of labyrinthitis ossificans that we can follow uh, that's uh, benefits from MR and CT. We'll talk about that in a minute. But you could consider the patient with far advanced otosclerosis. Um, 
that has nice findings on CT and then on late findings, you can see things on MRI, of course, temporal bone fracture, uh, vestibular schwannoma, uh, and other things. So if we think about, um, what we can see, I think it's first valuable to talk about the progressive findings that occur with the conditions that result in inner ear ossification or labyrinthitis ossificans. And there's uh, kind of two or three different groups of conditions that can result in that. And the reason this is important is there's often time sensitivity to this. It's uh, for intervention, particularly for cochlear implants. And um, and also you want to make sure you don't miss a important diagnosis, but broadly the conditions that can cause this are, uh, meningitis, which is the one you most commonly talk about and ossification of the inner ear after development of bacterial meningitis can occur as early as several weeks and can occur late as late as several years later. The second is, um, otosclerosis. So far advanced otosclerosis, you start to lose your cochlear lumen. Um, a late finding is a, what's called a smudge sign where you actually start to, you know, the, the lumen gets grayed out and obscured. So you don't have that sharp, you don't, you lose that sharp, uh, demarcation of your cochlear lumen, uh, cochlear ossification from, um, trauma. So temporal bone, uh, trauma, you can also get it. Um, so if a person, uh, develops a severe labyrinthitis, so even an idiopathic labyrinthitis, so uh, again, the clinical diagnosis of labyrinthitis is the constellation of vertigo uh, with nystagmus and sensory hearing loss. If you develop a found, profound hearing loss with that, you are at risk for a labyrinthitis, even if it's idiopathic. Uh, and then an interesting one, one that's often overlooked, um, and even though it's a rare population, it's still fascinating and worth talking about, is um, the progressive ossification that occurs after um, microsurgery of vestibular schwannoma even if you don't enter the labyrinth. So you're doing a hearing preservation surgery or something like that. You take the tumor out, you don't enter the labyrinth. There's a delayed vascular event. A lot of these patients will, uh, many of the patients will develop focal or diffuse um, ossification of the cochlea. I think it's also worthwhile talking about the, the quote, radiological progression of labyrinthitis ossificans or kind of the spectrum of what you can get because this impacts um, a lot of things from a clinical standpoint. MR is always more sensitive to inner ear changes than CT is. CT is a, is a late finding of ossification. So the first finding you'll see on MR, uh, probably two things you should think about is um, gadolinium enhancement of the inner ear. That commonly will happen with a severe labyrinthitis of any sort. Um, and then even more sensitive is T2 flare. T2 flare is very sensitive to inner ear uh, protein level and particularly inflammatory protein. And so even if it's not, uh, even if there's not enhancement with gadolinium, uh, you'll often see enhancement uh, with flare signal. So those two are the more sensitive measures. And then over time, um, you can start, if you lose, um, it, you'll start to lose fluid signal within the inner ear. And the best marker for fluid signal in the inner ear, again, is through MRI. It's that heavily T2-weighted MR sequences, the KISS and Fiesta sequences. And it, you can, early on, you can get the, what we call this, quote, dirty T2 signal, uh, where it's just not as bright as the other side. And that's uh, reflective of probably elevated protein content and early fibrosis. And then over time, you'll start to lose um, uh, that cochlear lumen. You'll start to lose the T2 signal. But early on, it's soft tissue fibrosis. And so you might not even see um, cochlear ossification yet on CT. As that progresses, you're, you will start to see CT findings. And CT findings, again, are initially kind of a, a blurry uh, loss of that sharp edge of the cochlear lumen on, on CT scan. And then over time, you can progress all the way to what we call a white cochlea, where essentially it's indistinguishable from the surrounding otocapsule bone, and you've lost all of your lumen. A couple worthwhile things to say uh, is that for you to actually develop ossification, you essentially have to have a dead ear. You, you, there wouldn't, as far as I'm aware, for cochlear ossification, you couldn't have somebody who has, you know, 50 dBHL PTA in that ear and then develops ossification that ear. Um, it, it really is correlated with more advanced hearing loss. So it's probably not an emergency, you know, to get a CT scan on somebody who has um, a labyrinthitis and still has significant residual hearing. It would just be very unlikely for them to have progressed. I do think it's important to monitor them, but it's not as much of a, you know, quote, radiological emergency or something like that. But um, a lot of 
fascinating aspects to talk about uh, with regard to neuroimaging. We'll save some of the uh, CI specific stuff for in a for a minute from now. But um, Dr. Dillon, could we transition to talking a li- talk a little bit about treatment for patients with SSD, and specifically start talking about some of the hearing aid options? Talk about cross aids, um, just the the different options currently available for patients with SSD. Um, so the non-surgical options for patients with single side deafness include either um, a traditional hearing aid. So if they have um, some aidable acoustic hearing in the affected ear, then they can be fit with a traditional hearing aid or amplification in that ear. Um, and then the two uh, more commonly used technologies are either a cross hearing aid, which is the contralateral routing of the signal hearing aid, or a bi-cross hearing aid. Um, And the contralateral routing of the signal hearing aid, you have a microphone on the poor hearing ear, which is picking up the signal from that side and routing it over to the receiver that's placed on the normal hearing ear, and it's all going up one auditory pathway. So it's leaving the listener in a monaural listening condition. A bi-cross is fit for patients that have some hearing loss in the better hearing ear. Um, And so in this case, again, we have the microphone on the poor hearing ear, picking up that signal, sending it over to the receiver on the better hearing ear, but there's also amplification um, to accommodate the hearing loss in that better hearing ear. Um, However, in both of the cases of a cross hearing aid or a bi-cross hearing aid, the listener is still um, in a monaural listening condition, so not benefiting from these binaural cues that we know can benefit for localization and speech recognition. And Dr. Carlson, talking about some of the surgically implantable device options, save cochlear implantation, um, bone anchored hearing aids. What are how should we think about those in patients with SSD? Yeah. Um, so, just backing up real quick, broadly, when we think about patients with SSD, there's three options. One is you do nothing. The second option is you. Th- uh, use a technology either surgically implanted or not surgically implanted that throws sound from the uh, bad ear to the good ear. So you're not getting the binaural benefit back. Um, and there's limited situations where there, there is an advantage and even some situations where there's a disadvantage to having that sort of configuration. And then lastly, the last option is to restore sound to the uh, to hearing to the ear that uh, developed the hearing loss. And that's basically only through cochlear implantation now. So those are the three different configurations, or the three different options or management strategies. So when we talk about surgically implanted uh, bone anchored hearing aids, there's been a um, kind of an evolution in technologies over time. In the late 70s, early 80s, the uh, percutaneous um, abutment strategy was developed where an osseointegrated screw is placed in the temporal parietal skull, and that can send um, a bone, a bone conduction signal to the contralateral ear. Um, the benefit of that, and that technology is, is still used today. Uh, there are, there have been some advanced, some, um, innovations in that technology that we'll talk about in a second, but still the percutaneous abutment is used in a significant population. Um, there's no attenuation because there's minimal attenuation because the screw is going directly into the skull. Um, and it's a pretty straightforward uh, surgical procedure that generally takes, an, uh, you know, under an hour to perform with various different techniques. You can do the the uh, the screen graft technique, the linear incision, or the or the um, skin punch technique uh, for that. The primary disadvantage of the uh, percutaneous system is skin overgrowth, and so you have to place a longer abutment and sometimes medically treat the area of skin around it. The body just keeps wanting to cover up the abutment, uh, representing a foreign body, and it will often create inflammation and surrounding secondary infection. And so depending on the study you read, 5 to 20% of patients will uh, develop varying levels of this, uh, which sometimes uh, leads to basically non-use. Interestingly, um, in the SSD population, probably the largest reason for non-use is just the patient not perceiving sufficient benefit to warrant upkeep of the of the technology, the device, the batteries, the uh, everything else. It's just, as we talked about, it doesn't restore binaural benefit. So after the percutaneous Baja was in place for a while and the issue of skin overgrowth became, um, it became such an issue that uh, we, we looked for different options. The next uh, thing that was developed was the uh, bicochlear called the Baja Attract. And that was a system that uses an internal magnet uh, to, so you'd have uh, an osseointegrated screw in the temporal parietal skull and connected to that would be a very strong magnet underneath the skin, 
that'd be surgically implanted. And then you'd have an external device that had the, the actuator uh, connected to another powerful magnet. And so it would couple the internal and external magnets um, through the skin. Um, so there wasn't skin overgrowth, but you because the actuator was external, you had to have such a strong pinch between the two magnets so you didn't have too much sound attenuation that would become uncomfortable for some patients and even a small percentage of patients develop uh, skin necrosis. Um, for several reasons, that be- that wasn't a super popular option for many people. There were kind of geographical areas where some surgeons would do a lot of these, but a lot of places didn't. Uh, still kind of stayed with the percutaneous um, abutment. The most recent generation of devices saw the disadvantage of having the actuator external, externally placed and developed one that could be placed uh, internally. And so the uh, cochlear osseo device and the MedL bone bridge are the two devices that use that ba- that place the driver underneath the skin, which gets rid of um, significant attenuation because the driver is connected directly to the screw that's connected directly to the bone, uh, and it gets rid of the need to pinch the skin significantly. Now, with these newer devices, the only two thing, well, mainly the the two main things that are located externally are uh, the microphone and the power source and the, and the actuator is located underneath the skin. So um, big advantage uh, with regard to issues of skin overgrowth, skin pinching, skin necrosis, they can still be done with a pretty small incision with uh, modified techniques a lot of groups are using, uh, relatively short procedure with little complications, but again, still not really, rest- uh, but still to be clear, it does not restore binaural benefit. And so at least in our practice, we still don't use this very much for the SSD population. All right, and, and the last uh, section here, the, the only option that can actually restore hearing in that ear is obviously cochlear implantation, as you mentioned, Dr. Carlson. Just to start off with Dr. Dillon, since this is a relatively new indication for CI, could you walk us through a little bit of just the current um, FDA criteria for a um, unilateral CI for the indication of uh, SSD? Yeah, so in 2019, the um, U.S. FDA approved the Medel cochlear implant system for patients five years of age or older who have single-sided deafness or asymmetric hearing loss. Um, and for both of these groups, they have to have profound hearing loss in the impaired ear. And then for the single-sided deafness group, a normal to mild hearing loss in the better hearing ear, um, and then for the asymmetric group, a mild to moderately severe hearing loss in that better hearing ear. Um, in both cases, the, they need to have poor speech recognition um, in the impaired ear or the ear being considered for Im- implantation, and they need to have completed a one-month trial with either a conventional hearing aid or a cross device. Now, um, it's my understanding that MedL was the one, the company that got the approval for this indication. Is there a precedent um, for the other three cochlear implant companies to be used for this indication, or how is that being thought of right now in the United States? Uh, so commonly, when we uh, when FDA labeling for a specific device is based on the manufacturer's application at the time of device submission. So uh, a cochlear implant manufacturer will develop a new device or modification to a device, and they have to propose a guideline for that specific device. And um, the guideline, uh, or sorry, the FDA labeling for each individual cochlear cochlear implant manufacturer is actually slightly different for adults and children. In general, we typically will apply the more liberal labeling of any single device manufacturer and adapt them to all of them. Um, as a general rule of thumb. And so even though FDA labeling uh, is specific for the uh, single-sided deafness population and people over the age of five with, sing- with single-sided deafness or asymmetrical hearing loss, uh, even though it's specifically labeled for MedL, at least in our practice, and I would say most practices in the United States, we're not looking at that um, from that perspective. The other important uh, point to make is that um, single-sided deafness has been off-label up until 2019 and centers were doing it. And it's important to remember that off-label does not mean illegal. If you look at um, medication prescriptions in the United States, particularly in the pediatric population, but uh, I think the I've heard estimates of 30 to 40% of medications are prescribed for off-label indications. It just means that you know the cost to go back and change labeling with the FDA is prohibitive, but it's well established that it can be used safely in certain situations. And so Getting back to cochlear implantation, off-label implantation, as long as the patient knows that it's off-label uh, and the physician f- believes that there's a favorable risk 
a favorable benefit uh, to risk ratio and it's communicated to the patient, it's very um, accepted to consider off-label implantation. So we've discussed the audiometric criteria, audiometric audiometric candidacy, um, but Dr. Carlson, how, how do we think about a surgical candidacy um, in these patients? Um, there's a, uh, I think there's a lot of things to think about. Probably the most important things are, from a surgical standpoint, is can it be done, and then and should it be done? Um, we always say medical contraindications, like as a patient too unhealthy to undergo cochlear implantation. And in a large tertiary center with good anesthesiologist, it's almost never that that actually comes up. The surgery is pretty short. The blood loss is minimal and they can even be done under local. Um, it's not commonly done, but that is an option. So it's very rare that we'd say somebody's too sick to have it. Um, the second is, can it be done? And we always, or I always say, in essence, you need to have three things to be able to, to for a cochlear implant for you about to you to be able to place a cochlear implant and for the patient to receive some sort of benefit from it is uh, you have to have some sort of lumen of a cochlea. So it can't be completely ossified and it has to be present. And secondly, you need to have a cochlear nerve that's capable of transmitting the signal. And then lastly, you have to have a brain that can receive the signal and process it uh, reasonably well. And so applying that to the SSD population, really, if you have complete cochlear ossification or significant ossification and the other ear is normal, most people won't implant that person because their outcome's probably not, not very good and their risk of non-use is, is elevated in this population specifically because they already have one good ear that they're going to be comparing it to. The second group is patients with an absent cochlear nerve and most probably in the adult population, that's most commonly um, from the, like a patient who had resection of a vestibular schwannoma or some other procedure like that. Um, it's always possible that you'd have an adult who uh, was born with cochlear nerve aplasia or something like that as well. Uh, and then I guess going to the third thing would be somebody with severe uh, cognitive impairment or something like that. It's, uh, it's not a strict contraindication, but sometimes uh, in a person who has otherwise has good hearing, the other, some people would be reserved and uh, considering a cochlear implant in, in that population, although again, a, probably a controversial point. But um, in general, um, I don't I don't look at age. Um, I don't look at uh, as a contraindication to implantation. I don't I don't really look at duration of deafness very much. That's a very controversial point. There are some people that won't implant SSD if it was congenital, and adult, and other people that will. And um, I think we need to learn more about that particular aspect before we make a firm decision for the patient. I think you need to talk to the patient, give them the information we know, give them reasonable expectations, understand their specific situation, what they're bothered by, and then depending on all those things, consider offering it. You'd mentioned, you know, it is idiopathic sudden sense neural hearing loss being the most common um, cause of sudden or um, single-sided deafness. Is there generally a, a period you would wait before considering a CI in these patients? Uh, thank you for bringing that up. It's a very important to realize that within the population of patients with idiopathic sudden sensory hearing loss, a third of them will recover significantly or back to normal. A third will get partial recovery and a third won't improve. And it's there are some predictors for that, but it's not perfect. And in essence, you it really is advisable to wait a period of time after this develops to see how much they recover before you put an implant in. Because if you put an implant in too early, um, you'll, you basically may take away their chance to get their, re recover their acoustic hearing. Most people wait three to six months. It's, it's, you shouldn't probably do it earlier than three months. One of the advantages of waiting six months or maybe even a little bit longer, as long as there's no time sensitive thing like an ossification or something like that, is that, um, you allow the patient to determine how much it's bothering them. When patients will, co patients come in now more commonly than ever, with single side deafness and say, I want a cochlear implant. And uh, they've done their own research and they've uh, determined that, that they feel that's best for them. That's a very, very selected group, very selected group. Broadly, if you think only 0.001% or less of the world population with single side deafness have cochlear implants. And so adults will come in and say, should I do this? And I'll give them the benefits. And I actually think it is a good thing overall, but I do want to tell them that um, it's not crazy to consider not doing something, particularly if they really, if they really adjust really well and they're not working in a, in a situation uh, where uh, they're having a lot of background noise or issues with that, um, or if they don't have bad tinnitus or other things. So I think it's, to be fair, I think you have to 
uh, present that and give them a little bit of time to acclimate to the change. If you ask anybody with an idiopathic sun sensor or hearing loss the day after they get it and they have horrible ringing in their ear and they can't hear, do you want it back with an implant? Or, I mean, everyone's going to say, I want my hearing back and they're going to jump on anything they can do to try to restore it. But um, if you give them time to acclimate, a lot of people will adjust to it. I think that in- that makes it more likely that you're not going to implant somebody that's going to become a non-user. You're going to be selecting the right patients at a higher rate. And when you're pursuing neuroimaging in these patients, are you getting an MRI and CT on everybody? Or how how do you think through that for specifically the CI population? So for the adult-acquired single-sided deafness, so meaning they, to, from their understanding, they had completely normal hearing and then developed it in adulthood, um, the chance that they'd have some sort of temporal bone finding that would only be discovered on CT and not on MR is really, really low. And so in general, for adult cochlear implantation, I just get a single MRI uh, with and without contrast. We have a specific, uh, what we call cochlear implant MRI protocol that gives very uh, thin slices. And on that, you can find uh, pretty much anything you would want to know about before you put a cochlear implant in. And it also evaluates for retrocochlear pathology. It kind of does everything in one. The thing, the subtleties you might miss are a patient with a anomalous facial nerve that you can't see well, like in a temporal bone on a CT scan. You can't see on an MRI that you could on a CT scan and a couple other rare things. But frankly, every one of those patients with an anomalous facial nerve is going to have a lambertine abnormality that I'm going to pick up on an MRI every single time. And then it would prompt me to get a CT scan. So I, I think just getting an MRI, uh, in my opinion, is sufficient for 99.9% of cases. Okay. Now I wanted to touch a little bit on um, some of the expected outcomes for these patients. Perhaps we can first start with the impact on tinnitus. We've talked about it several times already, but just if you're if you're um, implanting somebody for the indication of single-sided deafness, they have concomitant bad or very bothersome tinnitus. Um, how should we? How can we counsel them on expected um, post-operative outcomes on their tinnitus? Uh, in my practice, uh, one of the primary drivers uh, for pursuing a cochlear uh, a cochlear implant in the single-sided deafness population is concomitant tinnitus. Um, like, as I said earlier, a lot of people adjust uh, to the unilateral hearing loss and. Where, but still, a lot of people do benefit from the from the binaural hearing benefit. But I, I think in particular, there is a group of people that present with a really bad tinnitus, and they'll say, they'll even say things like, "I don't care if I'm totally deaf in that ear, just get rid of my tinnitus." Or they'll make comments like that to say that, of all the things they're experiencing at that time, the constant tinnitus that keeps them up at night, that keeps them from concentrating and working, is the primary. Uh, quality of life modifier. In that population, you can still consider the um, things that are recommended considerations by the AAO guideline for tinnitus, et cetera, things like cognitive behavioral therapy. Uh, Sound therapy is a little more problematic. You can't introduce it to the affected ear. Uh, There is uh, sound therapy, even in the contralateral hearing ear, still may benefit the patient to some degree. Antidepressants and things generally aren't recommended, although there is a high percentage of concomitant or co-prevalent anxiety and depression in the tinnitus population that kind of feed on each other frequently. In general, there's no real good strategy to treat uh, these patients. You can't mask them if they can't if they don't have hearing in that ear. Remarkably, uh, cochlear implantation has a very good track record uh, for benefiting these patients. It was it was really the first applications of cochlear implantation in the SSD population occurred in Germany, and it was really for the, the patients with incapacitating medically refractory tinnitus. And over time, an increasing number of publications have, dem- have reported outcomes in this group. And I think the punchline uh, for tinnitus in this population is that 90% of patients with severe tinnitus will demonstrate a reduction or complete suppression of their tinnitus with their device. The number of complete suppression is probably 20 to 40% um, while the device is on, but still a significant population gain reduction. Probably about 5% of patients experience no change, and 5% can experience a worsening tinnitus, which is, of of course, uh, important to say. There's a fascinating phenomenon of residual inhibition uh, that you can see in these patients. So initially, patients will develop tinnitus suppression when the device is turned on. But over time, with increasing device experience, so if they've been using it for a long time, 
they'll get increasing durations of tinnitus suppression even after their device is off. And that tells us that there's probably something more going on than just masking of the sound. There's probably some sort of, uh, people think that there's a lot of um, theories as to why tinnitus develops, but most people uh, liken it to um, phantom limb percept or phantom limb pain, where there's some sort of cortical maladaption to a peripheral event that occurs. And so probably you may be rewiring some of these pathways and providing the patient another opportunity to adapt or correctly adapt uh, to the changes that that have occurred. So um, still a very, very uh, early um, data uh, on this whole story of how tinnitus works in this population, but uh, fascinating, I think. And Dr. Dillon, when we think about um, assessing audiometric outcomes for these patients, maybe one of the um, first points to talk about is how do we accurately assess the benefit that they're getting postoperatively? Like in terms of audiometric testing, what are what are the ways that we can elicit, um, kind of bring out all these unique things we've talked about, the head shadow, squelch, spinal summation? How do we bring out those um, those really important, important facets of binaural hearing that aren't captured in a, just a, a standard um, audiogram? Yeah, so I, I think first, not to harp on the on the tinnitus point, but something that I think is really fascinating about this whole story of how we've got to where we are now thinking about cochlear implantation as a treatment for single-sided deafness is that it was originally intended for these patients with incapacitating tinnitus to um, eliminate or you know suppress the tinnitus that they were having. Um, but then when they found that they programmed the cochlear implant similarly to how they do conventional or what we would now consider conventional cochlear implant patients, um, that these patients start to report improvements in um, binaural hearing abilities, such as identifying where sounds are coming from um, in speech recognition in um, challenging listening environments. And so that's what got us thinking about this, not just for tinnitus, but also to improve binaural hearing abilities that patients were able to take this um, electric crude signal from the cochlear implant and combine that with this beautiful signal from the normal hearing ear um, and somehow have this improvement in binaural hearing. And so that's motivated us to think about different ways to assess performance in this patient population So we're now having to modify our test protocols um, so that we can assess some of these binaural hearing abilities for this specific patient population. Um, And one of the ways that we can do this with a conventional setup um, that we have in most clinics is where you have um, a two speaker setup and the speakers are separated either 45 or 95 or 90 degrees apart. Um, And this allows you to test binaural summation, um, the binaural squelch effect, as well as head shadow. The way that you do this is you'll have the listener facing one speaker and you'll present the target and the masker from the same speaker. And when you compare performance in that condition with the cochlear implant on versus off, that will tell you about um, their ability to benefit from binaural summation. So if you see an improvement when the cochlear implant is on, then that shows you that they are experiencing this binaural summation benefit. If you then offset the masker 90 degrees towards the cochlear implant side, again, testing on versus off, that will show Um, their ability to benefit from binaural squelch. And then if you turn them so that they're facing the alternative speaker and now you have the noise delivered to the normal hearing side, again, testing with cochlear implant on versus off, then that gives you an indication of their benefit for the head shadow effect. And what we see um, across these different investigations of performance for patients um, on different tasks of binaural hearing is that overwhelmingly patients with um, single-sided deafness who are listening with a cochlear implant experience a benefit in that condition that's assessing the head shadow effect. Um, And then there are discrepancies in the literature as to whether um, listeners are also benefiting from the squelch effect or the summation effect. And so obviously there's still variables that we are investigating to see what's affecting listener performance in those conditions as well. Is there like a rule of thumb if you're counseling a patient who's deciding they're going to go through with the CI for uh, this indication, is there is there like a rule of thumb that you would say in terms of the kind of the kinds of benefits that they might be able to expect? Um, if you just take a, like a routine patient who's who has an etiology of let's say sudden sensory neural hearing loss. 
Yeah, so first um, we talk a little bit about performance in the affected ear alone. Um, and when we're testing that side by itself, we see similar growth in speech recognition on you know, a CNC or a monosyllabic word task as we would see in conventional cochlear implant patients. And that might take a little bit longer, um, but traditionally you see those patients experience on average about 60% correct um, for monosyllabic word recognition with the cochlear implant alone. Um, for spatial hearing benefits, it depends on the task. Um, so if you're using the traditional minimum speech test battery that we use in the United States, um, one of the materials in that test battery is the AZ bio sentences and you pr present that at a fixed signal to noise ratio. Um, for our single side deafness users, we typically will use a zero dBSNR. Um, however, depending on the condition that you're testing, um, you may hit ceiling or floor effects. And so that's something we also talk with them about. So um, to be more specific for that, so when we're thinking about binaural summation, we're typically seeing around 50% correct in our single side deafness users. However, if we're testing head shadow on that same task of AZ bio sentences at zero dBs and R, we're seeing them hit ceiling effects. So they're about 90 to 100% in that condition. Um, and then when we're offsetting it off to um, the contralateral ear and we're assessing um, the squelch effect, we still may be around 50% correct in that condition. Um, so we do talk about the variability and performance that we see in all of our cochlear implant recipients as well. Um, but traditionally we're, we're talking or more commonly we're speaking about um, those averages, at least for that specific task. And when, if we just, you know, really thousand foot view, is it a true statement to say that most patients are using their device for most of the day? Yeah, you know, I think um, the patients that we're implanting are the patients that are coming in and they're asking for it. You know, they're, they've tried the other technologies and they've been very frustrated and they are looking for something that can improve their binaural hearing. Um, so these are patients that are wanting to put in the effort to see the benefit with the cochlear implant. And we talk preoperatively about you're not going to experience a benefit with a cochlear implant if you're not wearing it and say so you need to wear it at least a minimum of eight hours a day. And we have had some patients that took a little bit more convincing um, who were only wearing it four to six hours a day and they were not seeing the same jumps in speech recognition performance or the same improvements on some localization tasks that we have them complete. Um, and once they compared themselves to an average patient with single side deafness, they realized that they needed to increase their daily device use and they also experienced those benefits. And last question related to this, when we think about auditory rehabilitation in these patients, as you were kind of just getting to, are there any nuances unique um, to single-sided deafness? Um, it's really important to isolate the impaired ear. Um, and I think it's important to do that early on. When we were running our clinical trial, we had patients complete oral rehabilitation um, right after activation, so on the same day. And I think one of the benefits that they got with that task was they learned the appropriate loudness that they needed with the cochlear implant um, on day one. So they weren't easing into an appropriate stimulation level. They knew what loudness they needed to understand speech on day one. And I think that's hard for cochlear implant users who have a normal hearing ear to compare it to, because when we first activate the device, they don't like the way it sounds relative to their normal hearing ear. And so the inclination is turn it down because you don't want it to overpower your normal hearing ear. Um, but I think what we've learned from incorporating oral real oral rehabilitation early is that if they can determine what an appropriate loudness is and have that matching what they're receiving with their normal hearing ear, then they may experience those benefits early. So um, or, oral rehabilitation, um, using a direct connect setup to help train that ear um, is very important within the early period. And there's some emerging work that's also focused on listening with the two ears together and the training um, on task of localization and speech recognition and spatially separated noise that may also be beneficial. I'd like to say something just to dovetail some of the things that Dr. Dillon said. The, the first is, um, earlier I said that most people with single-sided deafness don't get cochlear implants, and that I think 
uh, speaks to what Dr. Dillon was saying it, that the people we see are they're uh, very self-selecting and and often very motivated. So while it's true, probably you know uh, you know the great majority of people with adults with SSD but don't undergo cochlear implantation. I would at least in our practice, people who come in for the chief complaint of oral rehabilitation in the setting of single-sided deafness very frequently undergo cochlear implantation. So I would say. I don't know the exact number, but probably over 60 or 70% of people who present to my clinic for the chief complaint of uh, the, you know, the effects of SSD, including uh, sound localization, speech understanding and noise, and potentially tinnitus will actually undergo cochlear implantation. In fact, um, when I first uh, started, we would perform, we would most commonly, you know, talk to them about uh, cross, um, bicross, uh, and then implantables, uh, the um, Baja osseointegrated screw. Uh, devices. But now uh, I would say that, I don't know exactly, but I would say it's probably a four to one cochlear implant to uh, bone conduction implant for SSD that we're performing in our practice. And I, I'm sure that's variable uh, among centers, but I know uh, several of my colleagues at other centers that approach it in a similar manner. Uh, the second thing I just want to mention real quick about rehabilitation, there's this, we I say the same thing that Dr. Dillon says to her patients, and that is if you're going to, if you're going to do it, you got to be all in. Um, what can happen is a patient will get the device and they'll only use it when they're having problems, but then they'll use it and they don't get benefit from it in those difficult situations because they didn't practice when it's easy. So they got to ha- they got to wear it all the time. And if they just put it on when they're going into the crowded environments, they'll think it's not helpful at all. And just uh, speaks to the the importance of having a motivated patient and appropriate counseling on the front end to, to reduce the risk of non-use later. Well, very good. I think that wraps up pretty much all the CI questions I had. There, one last specific patient um, group that Dr. Carlson wanted to ask you about. I know there's some special considerations in patients with sporadic vestibular schwannoma um, and the single-sided deafness that comes from that. Could you touch on that uh, unique patient population? Yeah, there's a lot of um, uh, this topic itself could um, be its own podcast, but just a couple of considerations. As we, as we alluded to earlier, you have to have a cochlea, you have to have a cochlear and you have to have a cochlear nerve uh, for it to work. And those two things are at risk in the sporadic vestibular schwannoma population. Also the NF2 population, a, a patient with a sporadic vestibular schwannoma that has never had surgery, um, before. So a, a treatment naive patient that's undergoing weight and scan or a radio surgery patient will almost always be able to achieve auditory percept from a cochlear implant. Depending on what literature you read, it's 70 to 90% of patients will get open set speech recognition in that specific population. Um, it's microsurgery increases your risk of non-use um, because um, there's a lot of things, but with the operation, you, you risk injury to the cochlear nerve. You also risk in progressive ossific- higher risk of progressive ossification of the cochlea as well, even if... Um, even if you don't enter the ear. Um, most of the data would say that anywhere from 40 to 60% of patients who undergo microsurgical resection of their vestibular schwannoma with either concomitant cochlear implantation or subsequent cochlear implantation will be able to achieve open set speech recognition in that ear. So it's less uh, than the other group. Um, if you're doing a trans lab approach to vestibular schwannoma resection, most people think you have to put the implant in that, in that at the same time because the ossification that can occur in the cochlea is usually faster and more severe because you've just performed with essentially a labyrinthectomy. Um, not everybody ossifies, but a high percentage of, of patients do, and they do so early. So at least place a spacer, if not a cochlear implant at the same time, and you're already in the neighborhood, so you might as well, you're in the right spot to do it. Um, if you perform a hearing preservation microsurgery attempt and you, the patient wakes up completely deaf, um, in that situation, uh, you would you would have to monitor the ear to make sure they don't develop ossification. You don't also don't know for sure if the cochlear nerve is viable enough to carry a signal. If you read the cochlear, if you read the vestibular schwannoma cochlear implant literature, we basically say that we to know if a person's a candidate, we say that we ha- they have to have an anatomically intact cochlear nerve. But I don't think that's the whole story. I think there's a spectrum of healthiness of the cochlea. There's on one end you have a treatment naive. A tumor that where the cochlear nerve is definitely going to be intact. And then you have the other end where a person underwent nerve resection. And there's no cochlear nerve there. But you can also have very clearly, you can have a cochlear nerve intact, but be damaged enough where it still doesn't carry a signal. And we've all uh, seen those patients where you uh, 
where you know, you absolutely left the nerve intact. You saw it and you even have pictures of it to go back to and, and, it, and the patient may not get uh, open set speech perception with it. So it's not just a cochlear nerve that's anatomically intact. It's a cochlear nerve that's anatomically intact and can still carry an electrical signal. Uh, not always the same thing. That opens the door to um, promontory stimulation to determine candidacy. We don't use that to, as a predictor because there are people that don't respond to promontory stimulation and still get benefit with a cochlear implant. And conversely, people that promised in positive but don't get open set speech recognition. So in essence, you might be preventing some patients uh, from having an implant who would otherwise benefit. So we, we don't use it. It's controversial. I'm sure other people um, listening may uh, have different feelings about it. Another scenario of uh, considering a cochlear implant after hearing preservation surgery is the patient where you perform the surgery, uh, they lose serviceable hearing, but they still have um, reliably detectable auditory thresholds. If a person has any detectable threshold in that ear and it's reproducible, uh, very clearly they have an, an intact cochlear nerve. And that there's pretty, it will be, it's very, very likely that that nerve will be healthy enough to be able to carry a signal to get reasonable performance with an implant. A general rule of thumb, but usually holds true. If they have any uh, clearly detectable thresholds in that ear, uh, they're probably a reasonable candidate for an implant. Well, very good. That wraps up pretty much all the questions I had for the single-sided deafness in adults part of this single-sided deafness mini-series. Are there any other elements, things that either of you would like to bring up that we just weren't able to talk about or things you'd like to add? It just, I'd just like to say... Um, when, you, when you're presented with a patient in clinic and they're coming in with a chief complaint of single-sided deafness, uh, I think the most important thing is to listen to the patient and to find out what sort of, what's their daily life like. Are they in a situation where they're really um, experiencing significant difficulties because of sound localization and probably even more commonly would be speech understanding and noise? Or do they work in a quiet environment? Have they adjusted well? Do they have really bad tinnitus? You have to work through all these things and develop a, basically a tailored approach to every patient, just like we do with everything else. There's still, the data is still really light on a lot of things. I, I don't think based on the current evidence that we should use age as a cutoff, or we should use duration of deafness in general as a cutoff. I don't think we should, because we don't have enough data in this population to know uh, where that point of diminishing return is. And until we get more data in that, in those areas, I, I, I think we should be careful not to exclude patients that might benefit. Yeah, I, I was I 100% agree on the duration of deafness. I think we base our duration of deafness criteria off of um, patients with bilateral sensory neural hearing loss, and I think it's likely a different story for patients that have a normal hearing ear that um, is also representing the signal and is potentially training um, the performance with the cochlear implant. Awesome. Well, Dr. Carlson, Dr. Dillon, thank you so much for um, your time today for this episode. Thanks for having us. All right. At this time, I'll move to the summary portion of the podcast. So for this part of single-sided deafness, we talked about single-sided deafness in adults, um, where in, in adults, um, which is d different than kids, the most common cause is idiopathic sunsets and neural hearing loss. Um, other things like Meniere's, temporal bone trauma, retrocochlear pathology um, can be the, the etiology behind patient's presentation. It's, it's key that there's a couple, besides just hearing loss, there's a couple key features of, of the uh, patient presentation to key in on. Um, number one is concomitant tinnitus. And then number two is the, just this, this classic presentation where the, the, the binaural hearing benefits are all lost. So the prominent um, difficulty hearing in competing uh, noise situations and then difficulty with localization. And, and on the um, back end of that, we talked about the importance of the head shadow effect, which is a physical um, phenomena, and then binaural squelch and binaural summation, which are central processing elements to that to kind of build this benefit to binaural hearing. We talked about the nuances of uh, the workup, and then really keyed in on different management options, and namely cochlear implantation for the indication of single-sided deafness, which was, of course, just approved in 2019 for both kids and adults, five and older, and, um, and some of the nu nuances surrounding management of those patients. To finish off the episode, we'll go through three questions. Uh, I'll ask the question, give you a pause for a second, allow you to think about the answer, and then um, give the answer. So first question, define head shadow effect, binaural squelch, and binaural summation. 
Okay, so first one, head shadow effect. Um, it describes the reduction in sound intensity, the modulation of the waveform, and the interval time difference that the contralateral um, ear experiences, um, the contralateral ear to the source of the, the target sound um, due to the physical obstructive presence of the skull. Um, this, this phenomenon is characteristically disproportionately affects high frequency sound, and that has to do with the wavelength of the sound coming in. So longer wavelengths or lower wave frequencies um, are, are less affected just by the morphology of that longer wave being able to move around the head. Okay, and binaural squelch, that just simply encompasses the, the idea of the, the central processing advantage that you get from having two ears um, that allow for both the target sound and the masker being spatially separated. And in contrast to the head shadow effect, this predominantly affects low frequency sounds um, in, in terms of the attenuation of, of the masking sound. The last one, binaural summation, simply just the fact that having two ears doubles the sound coming in, doubles the action potentials, um, and so you get summation of the sound um, opposed to just hearing with one ear. Second question, when and with what criteria were cochlear implants approved for single-sided deafness? So the FDA approved um, cochlear implants for the indication of single-sided deafness in 2019 with the Medel uh, Synchrony system. Um, they approved it for patients five years and older with single-sided deafness who have profound sensorineural hearing loss in one ear and normal hearing or mild sensorineural loss in the other ear or children five years or um, older and adults with asymmetric loss who have profound sensorineural loss in one ear and mild to moderately severe loss in the other ear um, with at least a 15 dB um, difference in pure tone averages between the ears. And then of course, we have the speech, um, the absence of open set speech recognition in the ear to be implanted as a criteria. And then last question here, how does cochlear implantation for single-sided deaf deafness affect patients' tinnitus? And this is one of the really key things to um, catch from the episode is it actually uh, cochlear implants for single-sided deafness were the main impetus to, to study um, CIs in, in single-sided deafness, not actually the um, binaural sound. Um, and what we find is that up to 90% of patients experience significant um, decreases in their tin subjective tinnitus with, during device use. Um, up to 40% of patients experience complete suppression of their tinnitus. It's worth noting there is a very small minority, maybe 5% or less of patients that do actually experience worsening of their tinnitus um, during device use, but the overwhelming majority have a significant um, improvement in, in their tinnitus during device use. And then also this idea of the longer they use their device, the seemingly um, longer latency before their tinnitus re returns, or there seems to be a lasting effect um, that happens the longer they use it, even when the device is off. So pretty interesting. Um, but that'll wrap things up for today. Thanks for tuning in and we'll catch you next time.